Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton's teachers' unions are saying that city classrooms are under stress. Will Justin Trudeau's blackface scandal haunt him through the campaign? And Andrew Scheer has come out saying that he can fast-track any pipeline challenges to the Supreme Court. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We talked about this at length uh, when the Ford government made some announcements about uh, changes to uh, education. This was late in the school year last year in the springtime. And there were a number of concerns raised at that time about the impact this was going to have on things like class sizes, course selections, and things of this nature. Uh, the education minister at that time assured everybody, no, no, that, that, that's all just, no, it's not happening. It, everything's going to be fine. Uh, and then subsequently she was removed and uh, Stephen Lecce, the uh, new education minister, took over and basically offered the same sorts of assurances saying class size was not going to have a huge impact. Well, uh, Hamilton's uh, teachers union leaders are now saying that the classrooms in our city are under stress due to jam-packed classes in some cases and not enough students for some of the courses in others. Limited room for switching courses. This is all the stuff they talked about that has now come to fruition. And we want to shed a light on this right now because it's, it's important to understand the reality here instead of just the political spin on, on new policies. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Daryl Jerome, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation District 21, uh, to give us a, a clearer picture on this. Uh, Daryl, first of all, thank you for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. No, thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate uh, it. You, you are fully entitled, Daryl, to have a, a sense of uh, I told you so, uh, as all <laughs> teachers can, because we talked about this uh, with Harry Bischoff, Harvey Bischoff, of course, uh, last spring. Uh, and, they, and, and, of course, the education minister reassured us and reassured me on this program, no, 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 it's going to be fine. I mean, he says, These, you got to understand the ratios and classroom size. My understanding is you've got some classes with 47, 48 students in them now. So, so that's, that's the Catholic board uh, that has those numbers, um, and um, that's, that's not our board. We have, we have collective agreement language that actually caps them at a, at a lower number than that, um, but, they are, but they are full to the capacity that we have, yes. So talk to us about what you're seeing now. What's going on in, inside the school buildings now as, as, as you look at class sizes, course selection, things of that nature? Yeah, so, so what, I'm, what I'm hearing a lot from my members is that um, uh, the courses are uh, canceled that normally run, um, and the reason being is there is not enough uh, students to, to, um, to run them. And let me, let me qualify that by saying, that some of these courses would run with, say, 20 students. Say 20 students really want to take a, a world history course. That would normally run. But because the budget is set the way it is, thanks to the government, uh, those courses have had to be canceled. Students now have to pick new, new classes. So what you've got are classes that are running at max um, uh, to, to the caps that we have, and students are, are being forced to take courses that they normally wouldn't take, um, that either they have no interest in, uh, or they, um, it just doesn't help them on their pathway uh, out, of po- uh, out of secondary. Uh, for those who may not be totally familiar with the education system, uh, maybe just explain that, Daryl, because uh, w- this is not like the old days where it says, look, at, you know, Daryl, you're going to school, you're going to take math, sciences, you're going to yeah. take this, that's it. And, and, you know, just be quiet about it and do it and go and get good marks. You, you tend to tailor programs now for students and, and where they want to end up, don't you? Yeah, and, and thanks for that. It's 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 difficult sometimes when you're when you're in the system and explaining it to to people who aren't in it, aren't in it. You're right. So uh, these days, especially if you you know we want to go the college track, university, or workplace, that's one piece. But when you're when you're deciding on what um, field you want to go into, there are certain courses that either a you need to take in order to get accepted in say college or university programs, or ones that 
are speak to your interests. So, for example, I'm I'm science. I, I went through a lot of uh, science to get to where I needed to go. Um, if I wasn't able to take, say, a grade 12 biology, I'm not going to be able to go into university. And we're seeing we're in, for for that program. So we're seeing that um, in our system where you have students that say, like, I. I I want to go into social science. I really need this course, but I can't take it. There's no way I can take it because everything's full. But that closes a pathway. It absolutely does. So, so there. I know our board is working, and I will. I will say that our board is 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 trying to work hard to keep those pathways open. But in doing so, um, they're also creating these large stacked classes, and I can explain what that is. If yeah, let's get into that. That's the terminology. Yeah. I think it may become the new yeah. normal, unfortunately. Well, and and the thing is, they do exist, and I'm not. I'll be right up front with you. We we do get stacked classes from time to time. But what we're seeing this year is that there's more of them. And what a stacked classes is basically two two courses taught within the same period. So you can have, uh, and, and usually what it is, is um, say a grade nine, grade nines and grade tens taking a grade nine and ten course within the same period. So the teacher is going to be delivering two um, curriculum, basically, to the class that, that are separated into nines and tens. Um, uh, do they do that at the same time? Yeah, so it depends on... I don't want to get in the weeds on it too much, but it depends on the course. Sometimes there's overlaps in, in the curriculum, so it makes it easier. But other times the curriculum are, are quite different. And there's a lot of, I know personally because I've done it, I'm trying to think back of there was a time I did this once, and it was daunting to try to get uh, the the expectations covered that are very different between the two courses. So that double stacked are not incredibly uncommon depending on the course, but what we're finding this year is a lot more triple stacks, and, and there's, and, and I, I won't speak to the details, but there are a number of, of um, classes that are being run as quad stacks. So you've got grade 9s, 10s, 11, and 12s, all within the same period, um, similar subject area, don't get me wrong on that, but different curriculum because it's grade nine through twelve. Well, how do you how do you how do you fashion a curriculum for that? I mean, well, the, the, some yeah. of your older members of the audience. I mean, when I was a little kid, we this this is back in you know when I was going to grade school back in the sixties. I mean, you know, we we had like there'd be a grade three and four in the same classroom simply because of yeah. what the number of students and the teacher would say, okay, grade threes, you work this. I'm going to teach the grade four lesson, now, but don't yeah. pay attention to it, which was problem <laughs> enough. But but now it seems as if you've got people from different grades here. Uh, and, and different uh, education levels, frankly, because of the stream that they may be on. And, and yeah. you've got to find something that's compatible with everybody. So, so you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's difficult for the children, for the, for the students. Uh, and that, that seems to go without saying, right? There's different maturity level, skill level, et cetera. It's also incredibly challenging for my members who have to um, maneuver four grades in the same period. Um, to say it's stressful is an understatement. So you imagine you have a, a quad stat class period one, maybe a double in period two. Like you're you're looking at normally teaching three curriculum through the day. I mean, you could be teaching I don't know seven or eight during the day, depending on what your your schedule looks like. And that's not uncommon. Or sorry, that is not common. This is this is uh, uh, this isn't this isn't business as usual, so to speak. What kind of an impact is it having on the students? I, I know it's early days. We're just, you know, freshly into the school year. It's been a few weeks. Yeah. But uh, it, uh, you've been there often enough and long enough right now for them to make some sort of an opinion on how this is impacting them. 
Well, and that's it. And this is what I'm hearing is, and I'm hearing it from my members. I'm also hearing it from friends who have children in the secondary level in our board. And, and quite frankly, across the province, because I talk to my um, counterparts across the province, there, there's frustration is obviously an understatement. They, uh, they, they, the kids can't, again, go back to the kids can't choose what they want. If they, if they want to make changes, they're told they're limited. I had one friend uh, who told me her daughter um, is forced to take um, a course that has absolutely nothing to do with her interests or in her stream going into um, university, but she needs the credit. She needs that extra credit to graduate. So she's like, well, I guess i got to take it. I have, no, I have no other options. So the kids are upset. It, and what I've, I've seen a lot on, on Twitter especially, people are saying, oh, it's the first two weeks. It'll all get worked out. It always does. You know, respectfully, they're clearly not in education because this is not uh, what we're seeing right now. That does happen. At the beginning, yeah, there's there's kids that you know want to jump between classes because you know this may not be they're they're no longer interested in that or this, but this is a situation where their course that they wanted to choose was cancelled, and they they have to come back and say, okay, well, what are my options? Not much. Well, and and they may still be there to your point, Daryl, but they're going to be far more limited than they were in the past. Very limited. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and that's what I'm hearing from uh, my members who are, who are guidance counselors, and they're saying, look, we're, we, we try to make this work, but all these classes are full. I don't know, we don't know what to do with these kids, where to put them. Uh, they have to stay where they are. They have no other option to do that. Well, how do you, how do, you do a, an accommodation in a situation like that? Because, as you mentioned, you've, got, you've capped class sizes here, so 28 or 29 or whatever it might be in any particular class. Uh, and and I get you know my 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 son or daughter goes down to the office and says you know I want to get out of this I want to go take a math course for instance the the answer may be I'm sorry there's there's no yep. room so, yeah yep. I I know that's what you need that's what you need for the stream that you want you want to be a, a you know a, a scientist or even a lawyer a lot of people don't know that you have to have math to do law too uh, but sorry we can't accommodate you this year I mean that that's going to cause an awful lot of frustration for that student yes yeah I, I mean exactly and that's what that's what I'm hearing I don't have I have data from from a lot of our schools. I don't I don't have all of it because my members are you know quite frankly very busy with their you know managing all of this. Um, but what I do speaks to exactly what you're saying. This uh, this inability to shift between classes they may need um, versus one they were just plopped into because the course that they wanted to take was canceled. And um, you know it. And I, I can I, I have numbers in front of me that shows that kids, you know, seventeen, eighteen, twenty kids want to take X course, but they've had to cancel it because there's not a quote unquote not enough kids running it. They just don't there's just no budget for it. So when the minister says, you know, that everything is properly funded and there won't be any changes, we any effects on the kids or the classes, we it's absolutely false. And you can you can see it across the province. We're not alone in this. A couple of things I want to get to here. Uh, sure. We're still, uh, of course, your association is negotiating a contract right now, trying to anyway. Uh, is is this a topic that is going to be discussed at this table? I mean, because people always tend to think when there's contract negotiations, ah, it's all about money and 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 you know benefits and things of this nature. Uh, this is this is this is workplace stuff that's considered. And actually, I think there's a strong case to be made for workplace safety. Because we've already heard anecdotally from the Catholic board that there's been some violence in the classroom because of the frustration boiling over. Yeah, so y- there's a lot. There's a lot there. You said, Bill, I really appreciate that. The the 
uh, health and safety, I'll, uh, that's, a, that's a big one and one I should have brought up before in terms of the class sizes. Um, do, are the rooms physically big enough to hold some of the classes? I know there's some rooms in some of our schools that they're quite small. There's no way that they're going to fit you know, 28 kids in them, so they can't use it. So we're going to look at space issues eventually if the government continues their plan to move to the 28 to 1 average. Um, I don't know. It's it's untenable right now. I don't know how it's going to be if they continue with their path. Uh, to your point about bargaining, I mean, um, the the provincial our provincial office is is um, sort of just starting that now with with everything with the OLRB. I won't weigh in on that because no, I'm not going to ask you to negotiate here on the radio. That. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, no, no, obviously not. But but Harvey can fill you in on all those details. But uh, I mean, to class sizes is. Uh, I, I couldn't see how it wouldn't be talked about at bargaining. It's very clear that they want to move those uh, class average class sizes up, and that's going to be a sticking point for sure. Well, absolutely, especially because when we talked with the education minister, I guess about a month or so ago when he was on the program, I, I got the impression that they were trying to impart the message that, look, at this class size thing, no big deal. Apparently it is. Yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, I, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I don't want to say uh, too much of my own opinion, obviously, and what I've heard and what what I've heard back from uh, some of the MPPs. Um, but it's just not true. Like what what they're trying to sell uh, the public in terms of how their cuts are impacting, or well, they don't even call them cuts. They won't they won't accept that language. But that's what they are. Um, we know that we know that the budget's lower than what it was. We know we've lost teachers. Uh, uh, due to layoff, we call redundancy, um, and also through attrition, they're not replacing those teachers. So we we have less adults in the building, we have less course offerings, we have packed classes, and this is with, um, in, in their eyes, a small change. It is not a small change. So I am, I'm quite concerned uh, about what what our schools will look like if they continue with this path to the average of 28 to 1 class size, quite frankly. I know, I know we're, I, again, I don't want to get into the minutia of negotiating here, mm-hmm. but one of the stories that we talked about with Harvey Bischoff, of course, was uh, was the number of layoffs. Uh, with Catholic, or the uh, public board here, rather, it was 99, of course, and my understanding is about 47 have been called back. The other 52 are was what's called temporary assignments. Could you, uh, does that mean they're full-time? Exactly what does that mean? So let me just correct you on the numbers. It's it's 50, it's uh, uh, 42 teachers that are still redundant. I don't. I think the numbers that were reported were um, a little bit off. There. Yeah, I'm just going by so the news just, story that we've been using. Yeah, no, and I and I saw it last night, and I'm it's a, it should be 42, but I okay. just wanted to correct you on that one. Um, sorry, what was your question? I, uh, are, are are these people that are on what quote unquote temporary assignment? Are, are they full time? Do they have benefits, or are they just waiting for the phone to ring? So, so um, um, many of them have been placed into what are called um, long-term occasional assignments. So basically, um, occasion, um, supply work, that's, that's longer term, um, like for a semester at a time or probably less. So, so it's still what we refer to as precarious work. It's something that if someone came back from a leave, they could be um, back, that person could be back in the classroom and that teacher is now um, back to daily uh, supply work. Um, uh, they they don't have um, their access to paid benefits. They would have to they would have to pay into those benefits. Um, so uh, there's still that precarity, um, but they are working right now by and large. What what also what's what happens then is that trickle down that sort of domino effect that occasional teachers that are used to getting these long term uh, occasional contracts are 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 scrambling to even get day to day work. Uh, so what we're finding is our OTs that are, are that are used to 
getting consistent work are not and are not making money. So it, it is that, that trickle down. And what we're going to find is that redundancy, that 99 that we had in the spring and now we're still mm-hmm. at 42, we haven't seen those numbers. Like my chief nego- negotiator has been in this role for 10 years. He's never seen those numbers. So the government said, oh, yeah, redundancy happens never to this level ever. Um, well, I wanted so, to paint a picture, and, yeah. and you've given us a snapshot of the way things are. And uh, we got a lot of work ahead of us here to, to make this system better again. Daryl, i got to break it off here. We're just about out of time. No but we'll, we'll stay yeah. in touch. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate Thank it. Daryl Jerome, of course, uh, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation District 21, which is our area here in the Hamilton area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Justin Trudeau uh, had a press conference yesterday in Winnipeg uh, where he again addressed and apologized uh, for the video that uh, we, the world is now seeing and talked about, and of course the, the pictures of him in blackface. Uh, there seemed to be a, almost a split reaction uh, to, to uh, what he's been doing over the last uh, 24 or 48 hours uh, to try to address some of the issues here. Hosted a town hall in Saskatchewan last night. Uh, there were a couple of instances where questions were asked of this, but it seemed actually to be a pretty benign meeting. Uh, much to the surprise of some of the people that are covering the uh, the campaign. Uh, is this going to continue? And is it going to continue to dog him throughout the campaign and hamper his election chances? I want to bring Christopher Waddell into the uh, conversation, professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University, and of course an expert in political journalism as well. Uh, Chris, thank, good to have you with us again. Thanks so much for the time today. Hi, Bill. Thanks very much. A couple of things I want to get to, and I want to talk about the journalistic aspect of this in a couple of seconds, because obviously mm-hmm. that's the prism that most of us are going to get our information about this. But uh, your read on, on, on how this broke and how it's been handled and how it's spread over the last little while. I guess two or three things. Um, one, of the thing that's, one, of the, one of the things that's certainly been interesting is there's a lesson in this, and the, the Liberal Party had, um, uh, in the previous couple of weeks, spent quite a bit of time trying to find um, potentially derogatory things that Andrew Scheer had said or, or things that they thought would, would alienate voters that Andrew Scheer had said or, or derogatory things about former candidates. And I guess it's a pretty good lesson that if that's the game you want to play, you better be clear that your own closet doesn't contain anything that people might want to use against you. Does anybody so have I'd a closet that. like that? Well, I think probably everybody has a closet like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one way or another. But I think the second thing that's interesting about it all is the attempts by the media subsequent to the story breaking to find people who are outraged and the difficulty in finding people outraged who are outraged. Uh, what's a, what's, what I found interesting is the degree to which um, the public seems to have perspective on these things in a way that media coverage sometimes doesn't. And what I mean about it is the, the, the expressions from the public that I've seen in, in, in variety of streeters and in newspapers and everything else, lots of people say they're disappointed. Lots of people say it's a wrong thing to do. People seem to say, um, you know, it's not great. We, I don't like it very much. But, but most people seem to say that was 20 years ago. That's not today. And it's not going to affect how I'm going to vote, regardless of how I'm going to vote. So, so um, I think that's pretty interesting too. In that, that what it suggests in part is that the media may get fired up about stuff, but uh, that the media gets fired out about things and calls things bombshells and everything else doesn't necessarily mean the public views it that way. And I would say the public on on both this and also on the on on Andrew Shear and his comments from 15 years ago about um about same-sex marriage or about abortion, the public is showing a degree of perspective that we don't necessarily see in some of the coverage. 
There's an interesting note. Uh, I, I know you're gleaming through all sorts of newspapers, as I do. Uh, our friend John Iverson from the National Post uh, wrote yesterday, because uh, he found the same thing, not indifference necessarily, but people, and I, I don't want to shortchange this and say that it is no big deal, because it is, obviously, and that's why he, Mr. Trudeau spent so much time uh, talking about this. But he was talking to some of the people, I guess, in Quebec yesterday, the John Iverson, and he, mm-hmm. says, he, mm-hmm. says, I don't, he says, I don't sense the outrage, and he says it's probably because we don't set the bar very high for public officials anymore. Um, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure if that's the reason why. Um, because uh, we're not surprised when we hear these things anymore. Well, I, I, I think, I think, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think probably it may as equally be, be the point we made a couple of minutes ago is that there's probably things that we all did 20 years ago that or 20 or 25 years ago that we may not want to have brought to our attention at the moment if for no other reason than 25 years ago we hadn't contemplated we were going to be in the positions we are today mm-hmm. um and that's what i mean when i talk about perspective in in that um in the in that yes it was dumb and lots of people acknowledged it was dumb yes it was insensitive yes it plays differently for for um for different um uh, communities it play, may play differently among uh, among um among people um of different backgrounds but but was it a deliberate attempt by mr Tru- two things was it a deliberate attempt to to um to i guess ridicule or or diminish people i, I don't think people don't seem to see it as that and is it something that's that, that happened a long time ago that is reflective of his current life. And, and in neither Mr. Trudeau's case nor Mr. Shearer's case does that seem to be the circumstance. So what the public seems to be saying is people can do dumb things a long time ago, uh, even things that might have been insensitive and that might have hurt people, but that, that the public seems smart enough to figure out that that may not be who they are now. Now, if, if, if any person, if one of these stories emerges from something 20 years ago and we discover that something happened two years ago as well, um, the big challenge, I think, in, in, it's not quite the same thing, but on some levels it is. In, the, in Canada, we seem to be a little bit different than in the United States in terms of how we cover our politicians, in that we generally separate their public lives and their private lives. And, and, and the point I'm going to make in this is that we only tend, many, much of the coverage tends to to um, reveal private lives issues only when they appear to be contradictory to what they're saying in public, and I guess I, I guess I'm, the public seems to think that those contradictions, the degree to which they might exist, there's some degree of relevance to how it, it, it's important to consider how how current those contradictions appear to be, and contradictions that are 15 and 20 years old. I think most people um, are prepared to write off and say, except the people, and, and, and we have, a, we have a, a group of people who are now outraged about everything. Most of them appear to be on social media. Mm-hmm. The, group of, the group of people who are outraged about everything are outraged, and of course all the people who have a, believe there is a potential political advantage will be outraged as well. Well, sure, and there was some, let's face it, there's some politicking going on here, and I mean, Mr. Sherry admitted, uh, for instance, that, so? they'll let the third video, because, yeah, we had it and we gave it to Global News, and so yeah, for political benefit, obviously, it wasn't to, to educate the public. Sure. But I, I've no. noticed, as, as I've followed some of the social media reaction to this, Chris, over the, especially in the first 12 to 18 hours, I, I saw, just looking on Instagram, looking on Twitter and Facebook, it, w- it was almost split. There were those that were thought, what a stupid thing to do, but okay, you know, let's Let's, let's see if he apologizes and moves on. 
And there's those who, who were outraged by this, and, and many of those, frankly, I know by reputation, were people that have been outraged by Justin Trudeau since he came into public office. So, yeah. you know, so there was that. Now I'm noticing, here we are a couple of days later, those that are outraged seem to be outraged because there's no outrage being shown by other people. <laughs> yes, and, and which may in fact be their frustration at their inability to influence public opinion. Who knows? Um, you know, I think I think in, a caution in all the um, surveying that you see about public opinion is, particularly in the in the context of an election campaign, um, sixty people, sixty percent of the population can be against you on anything, but providing you have forty percent, there's a pretty good chance you're going to win the election. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you need to be. I think you need to be a little bit cautious about about. Um, and I'm not I'm not in the context of your comment, but but more generally about the idea that more people are uh, dislike it than like it. But you do have to be you have to be wary of that. But I but I agree with you. Um, and and to some degree, this has been a building story. The um, outrage at lack of outrage. If you go back and look at you know, we talked, I think, a long time, several months ago, about the SNC-Lavalin issue. Um, people were pretty split on that, too. Um, there was a lot of coverage around the ethics commissioner's report on Mr. Trudeau's activities in the SNC-Lavalin case. That didn't seem to change anyone's opinion, and there appeared to be a fair number of uh, social media or media commentators who were outraged that no one's opinion was changed by that. So we may be moving into a world where there's a a subset of outrage about lack of outrage? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think what plays into this, too, is something you and I have talked about, is that, it, let's face it, if, you, if you're politically interested, you tend to gravitate towards the, the media that supports your political point of view. Uh, so you're uh, that's only going to brace up your feeling that if you're outraged, yes, you, I am outraged, and these commentators here agree with me. Uh, on the other That's side right. of the coin, people are going to say, well, it doesn't seem to be any big deal. Uh, he was contrite yesterday. Uh, not necessarily, we're not going to forget about this, but it's not going to be a big deal for an awful lot of people. At least that's the sense I think a lot of people have today. I think that's fair, and I think I think that's probably because um, in his case it doesn't appear consistent with his behavior, either private or public, in the last five or ten years of his life. And and uh, and so, you know, as I was saying earlier, I think if 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 you see behavior from a long time ago that it, that is inconsistent, um, you can think maybe twenty years ago the person was worried was contemplating running for prime minister and did something whatever. But you can also see um, I, the public. I think the pu- the public generally, you know, in elections, the public generally gets what it wants in terms of does it want a minority government, does it want a majority government, and I think. Some of what the coverage of this demonstrates is the public actually may have more perspective than some of the media on these issues, and I think that's a problem for that's a, that's a that is or should be a concern for the media because uh, at a time when, as we both know, the media is under pressure in a lot of ways, they need to be conscious of of uh, how their perception of things is versus how the public perception is, and that doesn't mean that the media should be. Uh, should just do an opinion poll and do whatever the public says, but it needs to it needs to be cautious about diverging too much from how the public sees things because at some point the public will stop paying attention to the media. And, and I'm trying to put this in a broader perspective. I'm just looking at the reaction, the initial reaction, and, and the reaction now. Here we are, a couple of days out. Uh, as, and I want to use the comparator that you did, Chris, with, with the, the sheer situation from a couple of weeks ago when that video was released. Uh, there was outrage by a certain segment of the population at that time. 
And then there was also some outrage, like, how come people aren't crazy about this? Why aren't you? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Which which tells us a lot of the time that maybe maybe we in the media are just a little bit too close to the forest here. Uh, we need to back Could off be. a little bit and get the perspective that uh, that the stuff that we necessarily might think is a big deal may not be a big deal to the greater public. Or 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 the greater public may be prepared to stand back and wait a little while before determining if it's a big deal. I mean, because I heard this, I, I heard this in the Shear debate when we were having this discussion with our listeners, right. and an awful lot of them from all sides of the political spectrum said, "I think it's." A, I, I disagree with them. Totally disagree with them. Uh, but that's his view. Okay, let's move on. Well, that's his, that's his view, and there's nothing. There's nothing in the immediate past that suggests he's prepared to act on whatever view he might have had 20 years ago. And, and as a matter of fact, but, he's you know he just, he was just on our show two days ago, and he said, "Look, I'm not even going there. If I form the government, exactly. that's not going to happen." So, you know, move on. Just as just as Stephen Harper said the same thing and did the same thing too. So, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, on some levels, and this may sound a little strange, but on some levels, I kind of wonder. Um, we. The last election campaign in 2015 lasted 75 or 77 days uh, because Mr. Harper called it so early. It kind of feels to me that in reality this election campaign may last from October 7th when the first nationally televised leaders debate is until the 21st. And, and what happens in a whole period up to that may not matter very much because I don't know that people... Frankly, I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that what's happened in the campaign to date has actually... Um, um, generated a huge amount of interest in the election amongst the public, but I might be wrong. Well, I mean, I, I was just looking at the Nanos numbers that just came out just before you, you joined us on the program here, and I, I mean, it shows the Tories. I think are up a point, and the Liberals are down a point. But and, and I know some people are going to say, "Well, there you go. That's the that's the beginning of this reaction." But that's been going on every week in that poll ever since. They've been going back and forth with that one and one and a half point difference, which is, as you that's mentioned, all within the margin of error anyway. Yeah, I, in fact, I was looking at the nano stuff just before I came on as well, just the, the daily tracking, and it's, you know, up one, down one, up one, down one. There's, there's no consistent pattern that you can attribute, which, it, and I think the public just generally at the moment is not very much focused on the election. Um, and But I think once we get to the debates, and it, 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 in 2015 it was important, I think, and it may be important this time as well. The election comes just before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a time uh, when people get together, when families get together. In 2015, the issue for a lot of people, about two-thirds of the public of voters in 2015 said they, they wanted change, they wanted to replace Mr. Harper. But they weren't sure who, whether they wanted to support Mr. Mulcair and the NDP or they wanted to support Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals. Um, I suspect... Uh, you know, the election then was October 19th. This time it's October 21st. Thanksgiving was about 10 days earlier. I bet there's a lot of uh, Thanksgiving talk about politics around tables. There may be decisions made. Uh, the debates that occur um, in English and French the week leading up to Thanksgiving may be very consequential. And that last um, week and a bit after Thanksgiving might be really, really consequential as well. So on some levels, I think what happens in that period may play a big role in deciding the outcome. I'm not sure that much that's going on at this point at the moment really will. I had an insightful conversation yesterday with a, a prominent conservative supporter, not elected official, but in this area here. Uh, and, and he said, he's a talk show junkie, listens to talk radio all the time. Right. And he said, enough already. Would you shut up with the Trudeau stuff? He says, we just yeah. don't care. Move on to other right. issues. And this guy's politically right. astute, obviously. Yep. And, and this is a conservative saying, look, enough, please. You know, move. He says, you're making this a circus. 
And I thought, interesting yeah. perspective, you know. I think every now and then we have to step outside the studio. I know we get reaction from our listeners and, and through email and phone calls, et cetera, like that. But you want to stop down on Main Street sometime and find out what people are thinking. Well, and, and interestingly enough, you know, some of that, I wonder whether some of that is actually the Canadian media mimicking what's gone on in the circus in the United States for the last year and a half, or last three years, actually, which is the nonstop Trump um, Nonstop Trump, and now you know since last spring, nonstop um, election coverage that's a year and a half away. And there are other issues that people feel are more important. The parties have been talking about other issues, whether it's about seniors, whether it's about families, whether it's about childcare, whether it's about uh, um, um, all other related issues like that. And we're going to hear more about it. Those are the things that I that that it seems to me, from what I've seen in the reaction to the Trudeau um, stuff and the Sheer stuff as well, is that those are the issues that 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 the public will make its decisions on about who to support, and and those should be the issues upon which they make decisions about who to support, because those are the ones that will ultimately affect them. Uh, let me get into a strategic question for you. you got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, given the fact that they tried to take a shot at, at Shear with the, the release of that old video, uh, and this was counterpoint, obviously, however it happened. Sure. I mean, the Conservatives used this as their volley across there as well. Uh, do they learn from this and say, okay, let's just back off, or are we going to continue with the mudslinging here? I would, I would hope they would all learn from it and hope that the mudslinging doesn't seem to have much impact upon the voters. And what parties, I mean, the one thing I think that, that you can say that is important on, to understand is that uh, the Liberals did well in 2015 because a lot more people voted in 2015 than voted in 2011. Uh, turnout went up to 68, almost 68.5% from 61%. Uh, the Conservatives know who their supporters are. The Conservatives are very good at getting their supporters out to vote. They do best when there's a low turnout election. Uh, as and and if you look at the number of votes they got in 2008, 2011, 2015, they actually don't vary all that much, and they went from minority to majority to opposition. They consistently got you know between five and six million, five and a half and six million votes in all three of those elections. The difference was that the Liberals got a whole bunch more votes in 2015 than 2011, and a lot more people voted in 2015 than voted in 2011. So if the talk about Mr. Trudeau and these other issues. Uh, becomes a situation where people say kind of a pox on all their houses, they're all the same, why should I vote for any of them, and people decide not to vote, that will work against Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals more than it will work against the Conservatives because the Conservatives are are better at getting out their supporters. So so that could be an issue we see over the next little while. And if all these things do play any role, it may be, if, if, it, if it turns out to play... Um, if it turns out that that the public basically starts to say a pox on everyone's house for for all this um, sort of digging up dirt and all these sorts of things, that will hurt the Liberals more than it will hurt the Conservatives. And and so I think maybe the Liberals, if they're wise, they might think maybe this was not such a great strategy to continue to pursue. Exactly. Uh, Christopher Waddell from Carleton University. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the help today. Thanks a lot, Bill. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple of days ago in the program, uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer was with us, and uh, we talked about a number of different things, and uh, the topic of pipelines came up, and uh, he actually made an official announcement about that and suggesting that he has a way of what he could said circumventing lower court appeals so that we can get certainty about uh, what we need to do with pipelines. He, he says that he would overcome legal objections to building new petroleum pipelines by fast-tracking any cases right to the Supreme Court of Canada to get faster action on this.
Marvin Ryder is with us, uh, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton to uh, give us some input. Thanks for coming in today, by the way. Glad to be here, Bill. Uh, I'm, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, neither are you. No, that's fair. But Which is going to factor into this, too. But uh, it sounds as if, well, yeah, why didn't we just do that? Uh, this is, I guess, give me some context here, yeah. because governments for years now have been saying we're going to build these pipelines, and, and injunctions come forward, come and there's a legal process here that he thinks he can hopscotch over, but at the same time, there are constitutional rights, are there not? Yeah. So, yeah, let's go back. So, you take any pipeline you like, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Keystone XL, what have you. What is the process that's supposed to be followed? Well, first, it's a federal responsibility because whatever is in that pipeline is going to cross various provincial jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So it's a federal responsibility to sort this out. And by their own rules, there's a, a consultation process they're supposed to undertake along with an environmental assessment process they're supposed to undertake. Already, these consultations and environmental assessments often take years to complete. So we have many pipelines that were first talked about in the I don't know, 2005, 2006, that should, in theory, have been built by now if they were appropriate to be built. But we do these assessments, we do these consultations, uh, and the government says, okay, we've reviewed all this and we've decided to go ahead subject to, here's a hundred conditions that they have to meet to go forward. Great. Except they don't go forward because people who don't want the pipeline built bring legal challenges, and they bring them in a spectrum of areas. So, oh, oh, you, you didn't assess that part of the environment. You didn't assess that part of the environment. Oh, you didn't talk to me. I've got special issues. No, talking to them is not the same as talking to me. And so they take these concerns to courts. So the court, uh, first court will hear it. I, I can't actually tell you quite what the first court is, but we'll just call it Court A. We'll hear it, and the judge will listen to those things, and he may say, um, those seven things there, I know, I don't think there's a problem there at all, but oh, these five over here, I think it's valid. So my recommendation to the federal government is go out and do A, B, C, D, and E. So the federal government does A, B, C, D, and E. They've reviewed it, said, okay, we're still ready to approve it. Now it's 105 constraints on the pipeline, ready to go. Oh, no, 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 you haven't heard me. And so more court challenges are heard. And then, of course, after the first round of court challenges, there can be appeals and appeals of the appeals and appeals of the appeals. And this is why something like Keystone XL, and I, I know, Bill, this is going to anger your listeners when I say this, I have some sympathy for Justin Trudeau on this. Twice, his government has said, twin that pipeline. Yeah. Twice. Uh, so when people of Alberta say, oh, Justin doesn't want to help us, he does want to help you. Twice, his government has said, twin the pipeline. But court challenges have dragged it back. Now, I think Andrew Shear's comment is, is interesting. On one hand, that would fast-track things. Let's just eliminate all these lower court rulings. Let's just go to the biggest court of the land, put our case in front of them, let you put your case in front of them, let's see what they say, and they'll be the final verdict on this. The only downside to that is, is like appealing to the Supreme Ruler, uh, what if the Supreme Court doesn't like the government's position? And you've now boxed yourself in. So if you go to the Supreme Court, say, I want a twin Trans Mountain Pipeline. Okay, people who oppose, you make your case. And the Supreme Court says, you know what? I agree with them. I don't agree with you, government. Uh, then what do you do? So the nice thing about the process we have is the government itself gets wiggle room to adjust, to amend, to, to fix things as it goes. I'm not sure going directly to the Supreme Court would guarantee a fast track unless you really are of the belief that you are on the side of God here and that the Supreme Court would clearly back you up. And that's quite a gamble, I think. But, but what about, uh, I'm going to throw a, a legal phrase here that we hear all the time, what about due process? 
some of these aggrieved groups are, are going to complain and say, wait a second, we have a right to have our say. We have a right to, to, to lodge our objections. And, and I, I, we haven't got enough time in this segment, Marvin, <laughs> to list the number of people that have done that over yeah. the years, from, uh, from First Nations groups to, to the B.C. government to a number of other environmental groups, and right. on and on it goes. And uh, I, I understand the frustration on everybody's part here. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, as you say, they, they've given it the green light a few times now, even bought the damn thing at one point just to try to get it going. We'll still own it. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, but everybody comes up and says, yeah, but this, we have a constitutional right to challenge this and, did, and we want this, this, and this. Can you, can you do an end run around that? Right. So this is a very dangerous thing, what I'm about to do now. I'm going to pretend I'm and, uh, ta- uh, Mr. Shear and responding okay. to you on this and say, I'm fine with due process up to a point. And then there's a point in which you have gone beyond due process and you're just being a nuisance. You're just taking every legal measure you can to try to slow something up, hoping that we'll get so frustrated we'll throw up our hands. And, and in fairness to whoever is in government, whether it's the conservatives, the liberals, the NDP, etc., um, if I am a business, a global business, and I want to invest in your country, I want to feel like I have a chance to make my investment happen. If our laws allow so much due process that these pipelines just bog down and can never, ever be built, we are sending a signal to the world that we're a place full of red tape. And you always hear politicians saying, elect me, I want to cut red tape, cut red tape, cut red tape. So I think there's a balance here between due process but up to a point versus obstructionism and using the law just as a club and not really – uh, with the best of intentions underneath it all, and that's a, a difficult balancing point. Well, and we've saw that in action already, haven't we? I mean, that's why the, <coughs> that's why the federal government had to buy the pipeline because the initial owners backed out and said, "Look, we we can't wait." Well, this is correct. So, Kimber Morgan, who owned the Trans Mountain Pipeline, again, they were the ones who first announced the twinning. They were prepared to invest billions of dollars. They were the ones who did the first assessments, environmental assessments, um, meetings with Aboriginal groups, meetings with other aggrieved parties, put together their case, got approval, only to see it lose in court. And they said, look, if, if this is what's going on here, we'd rather take our money and go someplace where people want us to invest, want us to create jobs, want us to create economic activity. Uh, we'll go back to Texas because they seem to like us there. Now, faced with that, the government under Justin Trudeau and Mr. Morneau felt they had no choice but to buy the pipeline because they really thought the Trans Mountain was the right thing to do. Um, and, and that, So again, you talk about action. I mean, that was quite an action the government took. That's $4.8 billion they spent to acquire that pipeline. The hope had always been that they would then get the Trans Mountain approvals all sorted out, begin the process of twinning the pipeline, and then sell it back to the private sector saying, look, we've cleared the hurdles, you now finish it off. Uh, so, yeah, Kimber Morgan would tell you, if you had an interview with somebody there, that I don't think Canada wants any investment. I don't think Canada wants us to come there. And again, if I'm, especially if I'm a conservative, that kind of a message is not something I want to get behind. I want to say to the business world, Canada is open for investment. I believe, wait a minute, what was his name? Doug Ford has put up signs that said Ontario is open for business. This is part of what that means. Yeah, the it was two days after that, of course, the GM announced they were closing the plant after he put those signs up. Correct. Coincidence. Uh, but Stephen Harper made a promise in 2005 when he got elected he was going to finish this thing, finally. Uh, he got bogged down in the courts yes. just as much, and he, he never at one any point just said, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm 
going to just forget about all the small stuff. I'm going right to the big guys. Uh, he's a pretty smart guy. I'm sure it was brought up at some point that he could do that, but he chose not to. Can Andrew Scheer do this from a constitutional standpoint, or is he going to get himself into an even more legal red tape? Yeah, so let's go back to Stephen Harper for half a second. You're absolutely right. Uh, anyone who's prime minister is a very smart person, and he gets a lot of really good legal advice from all kinds of people. And I think what, what Mr. Harper got as legal advice was to say the point you made earlier, that if you if you do too much and you preempt too much, then you're not allowing due process, and that opens you up to even more problems down the road. So just hold your tongue work your way through this. Look what the liberals did after they lost their first approval of Trans Mountain. The court overturned it, said, look, you didn't do enough consultation. They brought in a former Supreme Court justice, a retired Supreme Court justice, to hold massive consultations. The Alberta government under Rachel Notley and then the Alberta government under Jason Kenney both complained that this is taking too long. You're doing too much. And they said, no, no, the message we got from the court is we have to be really, really thorough. So, using this Supreme Court justice, they were really, really thorough. Did it, heard what the justice said, said we can still approve this subject to these conditions, and yet again, people were challenging. I think it's interesting, the most recent round of challenges, there were 12 of them filed against Trans Mountain. Six, the court dismissed from environmental groups saying, no, 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 your, your concerns were heard. This has already been covered before. The six that still stand at the moment, not saying that they're legitimate, but there will be a hearing on, are from First Nations groups. One of the one of the challenges today is with our First Nations people is who speaks on behalf of First Nations people. We see this down in Hagersville, where I might say, "Look, I consulted with the band council, and the band council told me fine." Except many people say, mm, "Band council doesn't really represent us. We're the traditional chiefs. We're the clan mothers. You didn't talk to us." So this is something the court's going to sort out. Um, and I, I have no idea which way the court is going to go, but I think this is the information Stephen Harper got. Now, Andrew Scheer, running for election, has made a promise. I'm going to find a way to fast-track this. That's really underneath this promise. I'm going to find a way to fast-track this, and I'm going to build one pipeline, two pipelines, who knows how many Andrew wants to build. He may find that this is the way to do it, to short-circuit the process and go directly to the Supreme Court. Or what he may find is that there's another way, <laughs> I don't know what that would be, that he can fast track it. And at the end of the day, that's the most important promise for him to deliver, not necessarily to go to the Supreme Court, but find a way to get pipelines built. Oddly, again, he may actually, if, if for instance, there's a turn in government and now we vote conservative and put the conservatives in power, what the liberals have done and all the groundwork they've done on Trans Mountain, he may be the hero to come in and mop up at the end of all that and make it go forward. But there, there's a couple of differences here, okay? For instance, because we've seen uh, the president, especially Trump, uh, arbitrarily say this is the way it's going to be. Yep. Our prime minister does not have the power of no. executive order. Doesn't have that fiat ability to just say this is the way it's going to be. Now, uh, again, here's a funny little twist of fate. Prime Minister Scheer would probably have to go to his justice minister and tell him or her what to do in this case of a private uh, uh, company. Seems to me we had another prime minister who got into trouble doing that. But he could order the justice minister to take this right to the Supreme Court and, and see where it goes. It, you know, these things are possible to do. I just think it's one thing when you're in opposition and float a trial balloon. It's another thing when you want to go to execute it. But isn't there supposed to be a, a, a barrier between the justice minister, <clears throat> especially because the justice minister is also the slash attorney general? Yes. 
uh, and and there is not supposed to be any political interference. I think I think that was the gist of the argument I think that that, uh, that Mr. Scherer and others were making about the the scandal from earlier this year. Yes. So w- he wouldn't he wouldn't think of turning around and doing the exact same thing be- for a project that he wanted to move. No, forward. no, certainly not. He he would just assume that the justice minister or the attorney general was so enlightened that they would know the uh, right thing to do and that that would be consistent with his point of view. So, which has probably happened about 25 or 30 times in the past, and it just never made the news because it did happen that way. But anyway, and it turned out the two people were in the same mind. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that it happened. What happened to Justin Trudeau, I'm sure, has happened many times before. The difference is that his attorney general was of a different mindset, and that's why we've heard about this one. Uh, so, so there is a possible way to do this, but I guess my concern is even if the, uh, the attorney general and the justice minister, being the same person, say, okay, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, I'm going to take this right to the top. These aggrieved groups, though, are going to challenge. They sure will. And if you lose, if the federal government loses at the Supreme Court, that's game over, isn't it? It should be. Uh, Again, we can't presuppose what the ruling is. Often these rulings are not strictly yes or no. It's what I like to call the yes but or the no but. We'll give approval, but you have to do A, B, C, D, and E, or no, but if you do A, B, C, and D, maybe we'd change our minds. These rulings are never quite as uh, uh, black or white as you'd like them to be. Uh, but, again, I think it's interesting that that he has addressed an issue that is of concern to many Canadians. How do we invest in some technologies? Now, where are you talking about pipelines? And I'm sure people out there have their views on pipelines, right or wrong, but this could be about 5G networks the next generation of the Internet. How do we get this stuff installed in Canada? I can tell you, Bill, thanks to Facebook, I'm aware of memes where people say that when you go to 5G, there's going to be radiation flowing through that's all going to give us cancer, and this should all be stopped. So there will be groups opposed to 5G. They'll want to appeal. They'll want to do this. It, it does seem that when you want to put in infrastructure and, and expand infrastructure, there's always a certain group of society who tries to drag you back. These things often go slower, and if we want to compete in a global scale, that that how do we get this kind of infrastructure installed? It's a serious question. Well, it is, and and again, even if you're going to do something like that, you're involving the Inve- Invest in Canada Act. So, I mean, again, we're back to the Attorney General, aren't we? Yes. So we are. it's it's a, a tangled, and the Justice Department and all the rest of them. It's a tangled web. Uh, Marvin, thanks as always. Great having you in here today. Glad being here, Marvin Ryder from the Degroot School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.